Well, take your Bibles again, the book of Mark, Mark in chapter 5, and we're going to read from verse 1 all the way to verse 43, just for the context of the, the stories. Mark 5, beginning of verse 1, it says this, They came the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes, and when he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him any more, even with a chain. Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs in the mountains and gashing himself with the stones. And seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him, and shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. And the demons implored him, saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. And Jesus gave them permission And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Their herdsmen ran away and reported in the city, in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed, sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind, and the very man who had the legion, and they became frightened." Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine, and they began to implore him to leave their region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him, and he did not let him. But he said to him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. Verse 21, when Jesus had crossed over again the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him, and so he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up, and on seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come, please, and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him, and a large cloud was following him and pressing in on him. And a woman who had a hemorrhage for twelve years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came in from the crowd, sorry, she came in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak, for she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well." Immediately the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding forth from him had gone out, turning around the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, Who touched me? He looked around to see the woman who had done this, but the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue officials, saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher any more? 
But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer, only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the synagogue official, and he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him, but putting them all out, He took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entering the room where the child was, taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old, and immediately they were, sorry, immediately they were completely astounded, and he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this, and that he should... He said that something should be given her to eat. And we trust that God will add blessing to the reading of his word. Let's give thanks. Let's ask again for God's help, shall we? Father in heaven, we give you thanks again this morning that Paul wrote in the scriptures, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. And Father God, this morning again, we plead with you that we would see Jesus. And Father, we pray that having seen his glory through the scriptures, that we would be transformed into the same image. Father, we pray that you would increase our faith and encourage us this morning in the word of God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What we're here to talk about this morning is the issue of faith. Faith in God who is powerful, faith in God who can do great things. But faith isn't just about the big things. And one of the mistakes we might be tempted to make as we read through the story and think about these two people and their terrible situations, Jairus and the hemorrhaging woman, is to think that faith has the idea of just the big things in life. The reality is that we are called to live our lives by faith from start to finish. Every part of our lives as Christians is to be marked by a life of faith. We walk simply by faith and not by sight. Faith, as I've told you many times, is trusting God to keep his promises. But one of the things I want us all to see this morning is it's it's more than that. Faith is also being convinced of things that are not yet seen. So if you like the first explanation, the faith is trusting God to keep his promises. That's the verb. That's the action of, of having faith and exercising faith. The other side of it, the state of being is being convinced that God is going to keep those promises. It's being convinced of the things that we cannot see. And that's what faith is all about. And our goal this morning is to see what faith is, and again, to see the glories of Jesus in the passage, and how the passage opens up and explains the glory of the living God. And more than that, like I was praying, 2 Corinthians 3.18, to be transformed and changed into the same image. Listen. The Christian life is not a life where you come, trust Jesus, and everything carries on exactly the way it was before. That's a mistaken idea. We come to be changed by Christ into the image of Christ to bear his image out. If there's not growth in your life, if you can't look back and see change over the years developing as your life becomes more and more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, there is potentially a problem in your life. As a believer, 
We're called to change and to grow into the image of Christ. Well, I've given you a note sheet. I apologize a few weeks. I haven't done that. I'm changing the way I do my notes myself. I do it handwritten now, not with the computer. So I had to make the note sheet up for you. On your note sheet there, the outline is simply this. Number one, two desperate situations. That's all from Mark 5, 21 to 43. Second, there is two kinds of faith. We'll look at the kind of faith that Jairus had and the kind of faith that the woman had, and they're different. And we want to see how they work together. Just to give you an idea, I've told you before about an inclusio. It's a, a literary device that Mark uses repeatedly, and what he'll do is he'll start a story... And he'll put another story in the middle, and then he'll finish the first story after it. And what he's doing is he's burying one story inside another one in order to make a point to drive home something that's very significant to both stories. And what he's doing is he starts off with the story of Jairus and Jairus' faith, and then what he does is he uses the story of the woman and her faith to really teach Jairus and all of us, of course, as well, what real faith is really all about. Okay, and that's the point. That's how the structure of the text works. In context, we read the whole story of the demoniac, Jairus' daughter, the hemorrhaging waterman, and so on. The context there is kind of neat. All three of them are individuals that Jesus goes and meets with and deals with. They are all three of them are social outcasts. The demoniac was an outcast of the people of the Gerasenes. The woman with the hemorrhage was an outcast because of her unclean state. She was in that flow of blood and so on. And the little girl was dead by the time Jesus got there, so she is considered unclean as well. And Jesus comes in the power of the living God, and he takes that which is unclean and cleans it makes it right. He casts the demons out of the man. He cleanses the woman and stops her flow of blood. So she's made clean. And he raises a little girl from the dead. And she's now clean as well. So it's a beautiful power of God to take that which is incurable and unclean and make it clean. We might get through the introduction. So there are those three things there. Two desperate situations, two types of faith, and one great Savior. I want to look at those this morning. So Jairus, first of all, and his situation. Let's read again, chapter 5, verses 22 to 24. It says this, One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up, and on seeing him, fell at his feet, and imploring Jesus earnestly, said, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. I want you to notice his great love for his little girl. Notice the phrases that Mark says, it's my little daughter. There's an incredible tenderness and a sweetness about that phrase. Jairus comes up, and you know, he's a synagogue official. He's a high-ranking official in the social order of his day. He's a Pharisee. He probably would have been clothed in the beautiful robes of his office. And he comes up, he hears about Jesus. Sorry, he sees Jesus. And he comes up and he throws himself down at Jesus' feet. That was the most socially inappropriate thing for him to do. He had a dignity and an honor about who he was as a synagogue official. And yet he's so in love with his little girl. Luke, in his account, adds a little detail that it was his only daughter. I think all of us have met uh, Luca and, and Nadia, uh, Pete and Nadia, and the little boy Luca. And Daryl and I had an opportunity about a year ago to go and sit with them and pray with them. And, and Luca, in his terrible condition, he's, he's slowly dying. He's only not even two years old. Just had his first birthday or second birthday, I think it was. Second birthday. So he's just over two. 
And you see the desperation in their eyes. And look at their little boy. They desperately want him to live. And you can see this man and his love for his daughter. It's a desperate situation. And he, he puts aside all of the social norms and all of what's appropriate. And he runs to Jesus and he throws himself down. Come and heal my daughter. Come and lay your hands on her and she will get well. The word for she will get well actually means to come and be saved. I don't save as in the sense that we think of it, but save in the sense that she will never go back to that desperate situation again. She will be completely transformed from one state to another. And you can see the desperation in his eyes. She's at the point of death. The way the story unfolds, we know that she dies even before Jesus can get there. And if you kind of put yourself in the situation and think about how long would it take to walk from the seashore, how long would maybe he spent with a woman as she explained all her situation and all happened there. And then before he's even finished speaking to her, the people from his house show up and say, it's too late. The girl has died. Don't bother the teacher anymore. It was probably 45 minutes at the most. And you can see this man, he's just wanting so badly. It's a desperate situation. And some of us right now are dealing with desperate situations. There's struggle, there's heartache, there's emotional toil, there's financial strain. And you can be in those situations and think, it's so bad, I don't know what to do. And almost be tearing your hairs out. And listen, we need to come to the Lord Jesus and see what he will do. Come in faith. Let's move on. The second situation is this, the hemorrhaging woman. Notice in verses number 25 and 26, I will read those again. He says, a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. That's this poor woman. We don't know much about it, but we know a couple things. Number one, the doctors took advantage of her. Her situation and their possible cures only lasted as long as the money held out. And when the money was all gone, she was left with this incurable condition. She's bleeding constantly. We don't know all the details of it, but we know it must have also left her terribly debilitated as far as her health goes, her strength goes. I can't imagine what it would be like to be anemic for that long but it would have left her terribly tired and terribly immobile with that terrible condition that she had. She was taken advantage of by these physicians. She was left absolutely penniless. Now, you don't understand this. You don't understand. We don't quite think about the same way. We live in a world with Centerlink and and all kinds of ways to get money and have finances and, and make our ends meet. But in that day and age, a woman with no money was destitute. She had nothing. And she's she's there, and she's coming in her weakened physical state. For 12 years, this blood flow is carried on. She's also ceremonially unclean, which means if she left her house during that period of time, she would have to cry out like the lepers did, unclean, unclean, to make sure that nobody touched her. The whole idea of cleanness and contamination was very strong in the Jewish culture and the Jewish idea of the Old Testament. So she had to be to kept herself separate from anybody lest they touch her and become unclean by contamination. It's a terrible state to be in. It's a shameful thing. Not because she's sinned, but that's just the way it is. It would have been hard to go around saying, I'm unclean, I'm unclean, keep away from me. You can sense this woman's desperation. She hears about Jesus, and she comes to see what he can do for her. And in fact, she's convinced. And we're going to look at her faith in just a moment. My question to you this morning is this. What kind of situation are you facing? 
Maybe you're worried and stressed on behalf of somebody else in your life. I remember one of our kids was in hospital, you know, and, and you go there to visit them, and they're lying there, and they look so helpless, and the IVs are in, and the morphine's going, and you're just wondering. And, and you do anything you could to trade yourself into their situation so you could bear their pain for them, but you can't do it. And there's a sense of terrible helplessness to stand beside the hospital bed of somebody who is sick and possibly even dying. What kind of situation are you in this morning? How much stress? How much of a desperate moment do you see? How much do you sit there and kind of like you're watching a train wreck in slow motion and you wish you could stop the events from unfolding, but it says a sense of almost uselessness as it kind of happens. That's Jairus. And listen, our God is strong to heal these situations. Our God is omniscient. He knows every single detail of what you're going through and what you're encountering. The other woman had an incurable disease and the shame that came with it. And listen, desperate situations like these call for a great faith in a powerful God. And we're going to look at that next. The second point there is two types of faith. Remember again, the inclusio, Jairus, the hemorrhaging woman, and Jairus. We're just going to look this morning at the hemorrhaging woman and her faith, and we're going to stop there. And next week, uh, Rod Hole is going to be here preaching, and then the week after... On the baptism Sunday, we're going to look at the story of Jesus raising a little girl from the dead. And I was in my study the other day looking through it going, hey, isn't that so cool? The day that we do a baptism and two young girls, one at least is the same age as Jairus' daughter, and we're going to look at a baptism and a story of Jesus raising a little girl from the dead. That's what baptism is a picture of, isn't it? Being raised to new life, to walk in life. So we'll look at that in two weeks' time. But just for today, we're going to look at this woman and her faith and Jairus's faith. Jairus had a weak and almost a superstitious faith. Now you say, how do you say that? I want you to notice very carefully the way it reads when he's speaking to Jesus. Um, he says in verse 23, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. His faith was limited to the idea that Jesus had to be physically present with a little girl and he had to physically lay his hands on her that she might be healed. And we know from the story, we know from other stories in the Bible, remember the centurion? He says, you know what, my servant is sick, he's dying. He says, but don't, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. You just say the word right here, right now, and my servant will live. And Jesus says, not such great faith have I found anywhere in Israel as this man's faith. Go your way. By your faith, it's been done. Words to that effect. And the centurion leaves and goes back to his house. And the servant comes running to meet him. You never believe it. The servant, the other one, is sick. He's well again. What time did that happen? And they compare times. Guess what? The same moment that Jesus said it. And we know for a fact that God is omnipotent to do those things. He doesn't have to be there. He doesn't have to put his hands on anything. He can just speak the words that it can happen. You say, aren't you being a little hard on Jairus to say it's a weak faith or it's a superstitious faith? Possibly. But look at the way that Mark arranges the stories to contrast and compare their faith. Isn't it neat? That Jesus, you can almost see him. Come on, Jairus. He puts his arm around his shoulders, and they go walking off. And he's walking along with the disciples and Jairus all moving together through the crowds. And all of a sudden, Jesus stops. Who touched me? And the disciples, come on, Lord. What are you talking about who touched you? The crowds are all around you. Everybody's touching you. 
And Jesus turns around looking for that one. He knew exactly. And Jairus had to stand there and listen to that whole story. And you could sense the desperation in his heart as he's thinking about his little girl back at home. She's dying. What are you doing? Waste some time here. Come on, just get cured and let's go. We've got to get back. We've got to get back. You've got to lay hands on her. And you know what? The neatest thing in the whole story, and we're going to talk on this again in a couple weeks, but sometimes God delays. We hear, he hears our prayers. He knows what the answer is going to be. He has a plan. He has a plan to give you to whatever it is you're praying for, but sometimes God delays for a time. You know why? To make our faith grow, number one. And number two, because he has something so much better in mind as an answer. He could have gone with Jairus and healed her incurable disease, and she, or Jairus' daughter disease, and she could have gotten up and walked away. But you know what? In waiting, and you can imagine Jairus' heart, he loves his little girl to hear the news, your daughter's dead. Must have been heartbreaking. But he had to go in with him and watch. And the whole point of the story is, in Jairus and seeing what the, the woman with her faith and the way Jesus deals with her, he is being taught all about what faith really is. So let's look at the hemorrhaging woman's faith. Let's read again verses 27 28. He says this, After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd and behind him and touched his cloak, and for she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. That's not the verses I was looking for. No, it is the verses. That's exactly what I was looking for. After hearing about Jesus. Here we go. After read again. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak, and she thought, or probably better, she was saying repeatedly, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. I want you to notice a bunch of things about her faith that are really important. It's biblical faith. You remember the story, the verse in Romans 10, verse 17? So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, right? Look at what it says about her first. She says she heard about Jesus. She'd heard about miracles. She'd heard about the casting out of the demons. She'd heard about the cleansing of lepers. She'd heard about the man in the synagogue with the withered hand. And Jesus standing there and says, stretch out your hand. The man stretched out his hand. It was whole. She'd heard all these stories about Jesus. Maybe the stories about Jesus cleansing and casting out the demoniac on the Gerasenes had filtered its way back to her home. And she'd heard about it. And faith came in the hearing of the stories about Jesus. It's exactly the same for us, isn't it? We hear about what Jesus has done from others. We hear the testimonies. Someone gets up and a weak and trembling voice shares a testimony of how God saved them from a life of sin. And that's the stories of what Jesus is doing in our life and other people's life. And hearing those stories, hearing about the great works that God has done is what brings faith. God takes It's a neat thing. Imagine an arrow piercing into an apple, right? The arrow comes along and it punctures the apple, and that's the message of the gospel. And faith comes with that message, and faith is able to respond to the message. And she says she heard about this, and what's it say? She came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak, for she thought, and she's explaining it, she said, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. There is a conviction and a convincing in her own heart. Her faith is convinced of God's actions. She's saying again and again, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. And that's the, that's the state of being. Her faith is active because she comes and she touches. But the state of being is she's convinced 
Nothing could shake her faith. You think about what she did. She didn't come up going unclean, unclean, unclean as she walked through the crowd. She came up silently. And we know the crowd's pressing all in around her. And she probably had it all covered up. And she's getting through the crowd. And she pushed her way all the way up to Jesus. And she does something that's completely socially unacceptable and completely wrong by their standards. She reaches out and she touches this man, touches his coat. She's so convinced that God is going to heal her by that touch that she reaches out and she does it. She touches him. She's convinced. Number one, she's here. Let me slow down and state it again in English. Her faith is based on hearing. Her faith is convinced of God's action. Her faith moves her to act. She comes and she touches. What does James 2 tell us? Faith without works is dead. Read through Hebrews 11 sometime. Every single guy mentioned, and woman too, mentioned Hebrews 11. By faith, he built an ark. By faith, he left Egypt. By faith, he left Ur of the Chaldees. By faith, he did this. By faith, he offered up Isaac. Every single connection between faith is linked to an action. This woman put her faith into action. Notice also her faith was the channel by which she received blessing from God. Look what he says to her. He says in verse 34, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Be healed of your affliction. He's laying out for her. Listen, it's your faith. And you say, how does that work? How is faith the channel of God's blessing. We believe from the Bible that we are saved by grace through faith. And you say, what's so significant about by and through? The grace of God saves us. That's God's unmerited favor poured out on us by which we are saved. The way in which that favor, that favor of God comes to us is through a channel. And that channel is called faith. We trust in God, and by faith we receive the promises and the blessing. So it's still God's grace that he acted, and we're going to look at that at the end, that he acted towards her to cleanse her and heal her of that problem, but faith was the channel by which she received that blessing from God. Notice how it ends up. Actually, it's more than that. She had a tremendous and a great faith, but you know what? Jesus was looking for more. I think it's really neat. I love the story. I love the way he does it. He just stops. Who touched me? And you can see the disciples. What are you doing, Lord? Everybody's touching you. No, no, no. Jesus is not ignorant. And when you first read the story, it's possible to start thinking, you know what? Maybe he didn't know. Maybe he just knew, oh, power went out, you know. That's what it says. The power went forth from him. Maybe he just stopped. You You might think that. Maybe he's thinking, oh, I'm not too sure who that was. And, and so he looks around, who touched me? No. We were talking the night about what the omniscience of God is. And someone said, how does, how does God know all the numbers of the sands and the seashore? How does God know the hairs on your head? How did God know that this woman, who it was? How does he know? Because he stops and thinks? He scratches his head, okay, this is Wednesday. Okay, we're by the seashore. Oh, it's got to be the woman with the, the blood. No, he's so, his omniscience is so great, his omnipotence is so great, he just knows it immediately. If we were to stand here and ask the Lord, how many hairs are on my head, he would just give me the answer, because he knows it. And he knew this woman exactly as it was. And so he turned around and asked, who is it that touched me? And then he looks directly at her. I think that's really neat. You can almost see the poor woman, right? 
She touched him. She immediately knows in her body that she's been healed. And she's almost trying to sort of slip back into the crowd and get away from Jesus. And Jesus sort of turns right around and he looks right through the crowd and he looks right at her. And then she comes and you can see what's happening in her heart. She's seeing who this is. This is no ordinary man. This is no just some carpenter who walked on the beach who, who supposedly was a great prophet. She, all of a sudden, that moment when Jesus' eyes are boring into hers, she's like, this is something far greater. And the Bible says she came in fearing and trembling, and she fell down before him. I love the stories. Do you notice the demoniac? He came and fell down before Jesus. Jairus came and fell down before Jesus. This woman came and fell down before Jesus. All of them the same response. It's a response of worship. So what Jesus is looking for is two more things. We see faith comes by hearing. Faith is being convinced of God's actions. Faith moves us to act. Faith is the channel by which you receive blessings from God. But faith must be accompanied by confession. And this poor woman's on her knees in front of Jesus. And what the Bible says, it says she told him, verse 33, and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. She literally sat there and told the whole story. All of her unclean situation, all the doctors and all that stuff, everything was spelled out before Jesus and she gave great confession now, sometimes we think of confession as the idea of somebody gets in trouble, right? And they go and they make a confession of what they did. You know, and then such as a day I lit a match and started a fire and it burned the whole place down. That's a confession. But a confession is not limited to guilt. Confession is also a statement of truth. So we give a confession of our faith. In two weeks' time, two young ladies are going to stand up here and they're going to give a confession of their faith. They're going to say, this is how Jesus saved me. And we're going to take them on the baptismal tag and we'll put their hands around them and say, on your confession of faith, we now baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And put them down and so on. It's a statement of truth. She confesses. The Bible tells us that faith, or is it? Uh, Romans 10 and 9. Let's look at that. Take your Bibles, Romans 10 and 9, before I misquote it. Romans 10 and 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you'll be saved. So faith is accompanied or goes with a confession of truth. Not only that, faith leads us to worship. I love that part of the story. She's at the, at, on her knees before him, and there's a sense of worship. The Bible says there that it was in awe or fear and trembling. The idea is awe. She's all of a sudden realizing who this is that's standing in front of her, who it is that by omnipotent power and omniscience, because he looked right at her to see her, he knew who she was, and she all of a sudden knew who he was in fullness. She'd heard about him, and now she'd experienced his touch in that sense, even though she touched him. And it was revealed to her, eyes were open. Wow, this is no ordinary man. This is the living God. And that brings us to our last point. I want to look at the great, the one great Savior. On your note sheet, you have on the bottom of page two, there is some lessons we're going to learn. What we're going to do is we're going to finish looking at one great Savior, and then we're going to take communion together. I want you to use this time to just feed your hearts and feed your souls and think about the Lord Jesus. 
We often say when we come to take communion on Sunday mornings that that's a time when we focus solely on Christ. And I want for this little bit of time now to think about all the things that Jesus has done and all the things we can see about Christ in the passage and allow that to be fuel for your personal worship before the living God as we consider them, and then we'll take communion together. I want you to see, first of all, the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ in his coming with Jairus. He didn't stop and rebuke him for his weak faith. He didn't give him a little lecture about what, where were you. He didn't stop and say, hey, Jairus, you're the synagogue ruler. Well, the nearest synagogue is the one in Capernaum. And the synagogue rulers, all the Pharisees in Capernaum, just a little while ago, you went out with the Sadducees and you plotted how to destroy me. That's back in chapter 3. He didn't bring that back up. He just turned around and he walked with this man. There's a compassion in Jesus. He has a care for us. You ever going through a really dark, dark, difficult time and a difficult struggle in your life? If you're ever tempted to think that God has stopped caring about you, you're wrong. God cares. In fact, I love the comparison. Jairus says, my little daughter. And what does Jesus call the woman with the hemorrhage? Daughter. There's a relationship there. There's a kindness and a compassion of Jesus for his people. He cares about us. See the compassion of Jesus. See the gentleness with which Jesus dealt with this bruised and broken. I put on your verse sheet there, the note sheet there, the verse from Isaiah 42. A broken reed he won't break, a bruised reed he won't break, and a smoking wick he won't snuff out. Jesus was dealing kindly and gently with the people that he was ministering to. He was gentle with them. See the gentleness in Jesus in this whole story. The way he does, he didn't rebuke and, and tell the woman off, well, you know, you're ceremonially unclean. You should have sent the message. I could have come to you. He didn't give her all that. No, he dealt with her in gentleness. The gentleness of the Lord Jesus. See also something else here I missed for a while, and one of the commentators pointed out the holiness of God in the person of Christ. He's standing there, and a woman who is ceremonially unclean touches him. But the holiness of God is so great, it's an infinite holiness in Jesus, so that he is not defiled by her uncleanness, she is cleansed by his holiness. Stop for a moment and think of the holiness of God in this beautiful situation. She's touching him. And instead of the contamination going one way, she is cleansed. She knows immediately in her body that the blood has stopped. It's dried up. She's cleansed. She's made right again. It's a beautiful thing. Look also at the omnipotence of Jesus in this. He healed an incurable disease. I love the fact that he calmed the raging storm. And when did it, how did it stop? Immediately. It stopped right away. There wasn't a rocking around of the boats and moving of the waves. It stopped. In the omnipotence of God, when he cast out the legion of demons, it didn't take 24 hours for them all to work their way out. They were all gone in an instant, immediately. It's the omnipotence of Jesus Christ, omnipotence of God working. Notice he cures the incurable disease immediately. It doesn't take time. There isn't like a wait time for the medication to take effect, so it finally stops immediately in her body. It's dried up. The blood stops flowing instantly. When she raised, he raises the little girl to dead, what happens? Get up, little girl. Immediately, she gets up. 
That's the omnipotent power of God at work in the Lord Jesus. Look at that. You know, one of our problems is, for us, we see our God as far too small. The reason why we have little faith and we pray so little and so weak is because our picture, our view of God is just too small. The reason why I keep reading and I keep thinking about that verse in 2 Corinthians 3, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. What's that mean? We need to see our God as he truly is. It's a tragedy when our God is small. We can put him in a box. This morning, as you look at that story, and you see Jesus in the crowd walking, and you see this woman cleansed and healed, see the omnipotence of God. An omnipotence of God that did something far greater than just can cure an incurable disease. The omnipotence of God that conquered sin and death and made us right with God, that brought us into a relationship with the living God. That took the omnipotence of God to do. And God didn't break a sweat doing it. He did it like that. See also the omniscience of Christ. He knew who touched him. He knew her situation. And guess what? He knows your situation as well. If you think your situation is beyond the reach of God, guess what? He knows more about your situation than you do. He knows how it's going to be resolved. To him, he's not worried. not looking down from heaven going, oh, no, what am I going to do? It doesn't happen that way. He knows exactly what it's going to work out. He already has the plan. He's already working to bring that answer to bear. It might take five more years for the answer to get here. It might get here before we finish this sentence. But he's going to do it. He is an omniscient God. You think, but what about my situation? It just seems, I've been praying about this for years and years and years, and God isn't answering. I'm banging on heaven's door, and it seems like the door is locked shut, and there's nobody home. It feels that way. The reality is, even if it's not in this life, the assurance from Scripture is one day every single situation will be righted. Every single wrong will be taken care of. All those things that we worried about because it seemed like it was an unfair ending to a situation, God will put it right. See the omniscience of Christ who knew exactly who touched him. See the omniscience of Christ who knew Jairus was coming. He already knew the little girl. He knew she was going to die, but he knew the glory of God would be seen in just an hour or so when he would raise her from the dead. Something beyond those things. See the love of Jesus in all of this. He didn't just come to teach us and preach the word to us. He came and he loved us. He loved us to the point of death, even death on a cross. See the love of Jesus. Look how he speaks to the little girl. Talitha, little girl. It's a kind, it's a gentle, it's a loving expression. You and I have the privilege this morning of, of worshiping the living God. But I think one of our biggest problems is God is just too small in our eyes. I think one of the biggest things we need to do as a church is to have our view massively expanded as to who God is, the greatness of our God, the love of our God, the holiness of our God. I think it was John Newton uh, in the movie Amazing Grace. I think he says this. 
he's, he was blind and he's staying there and, and um, Wilberforce is with him and he says, I am a great sinner, but God is a great savior. I think it's one of the neatest things in the movie. I was, what do you say? I once was blind, but now I see. Now he, God had left him blind in his later years. He knew the greatness of God. You read the men like Spurgeon and J.C. Ryle and some of these old guys in the old days. They knew, they saw the greatness of God. And we come together week by week and we look at that loaf of bread. We look at those little cups of juice in there. And we take the bread and we take the little juice and we remember the Lord. But how often does our memory just fit what our mind can conceive? God is so much bigger. It's when we open our eyes through the faith in the scriptures and we see Jesus as he truly is, the omnipotent God, the omniscient God, the holy, the thrice holy God. That's when we're transformed. That's when we change and we see him as he truly is. I'm going to take a few moments and invite you just to spend some time silently with the Lord. You had an incurable disease and God has set you free. He has cleansed you. You once were dead in sin and trespasses, but God has made you alive. And he has invited you to come this morning and to remember him. Don't just remember the benefit that you receive from what Christ did. Think also of the greatness of the God who died for you to set you free. And then we'll take communion together and we'll finish the last little bit of the message. All right. Loving Father, we give you thanks again this morning for the Lord Jesus. Fathers, thinking through those stories, and we strip all it away, and we just see Jesus. We see him in his compassion. And Father, we realize he had compassion on us. Father, we see the gentleness of Jesus as he dealt with those people. Weak faith and strong faith. And Father, we realize again and again how gentle and how kind and how gracious he has dealt with us. Father, we see the holiness of the living God. The very fact that he who was absolutely holy cleansed her by that touch. We realize again, O God, that your holiness required a sacrifice for sin. Your holiness required blood to be shed, the fire to be lit, and the smoke to rise up. And Father, we thank you that his death on a cross has been a sweet-smelling savor before your face. And Father, even as Jesus, at the very end of his time on the cross, shouted with a great shout, It is finished. We realize, O God, that you are satisfied in what he has done on our behalf. And Father, we give you thanks that it is by your omnipotent power that you have made us who once were dead alive. And Father, it is our privilege, it is our joy to turn our focus full on the Lord Jesus and to see him, the glory of who he is, the omnipotent power in him 
and to see also the love and the grace by which we have been saved. Father, we thank you for these elements on the table that are in front of us. We thank you for bread, a simple, ordinary thing that reminds us that Jesus' body was given for us. We thank you, O God, also for a little cup of juice. The crushing of the grapes reminds us that his soul was crushed. You crushed him, Father, for us. And Father, we thank you that it is not without the shedding of blood that we have remission. And we have this morning been forgiven. Father, again, I was reminded this week of how great is the forgiveness that each of us enjoys. We are indeed like John Newton. We are great sinners, but we have a great Savior. And Father, we would take this bread and we would take this little cup of juice and we would pass them around from hand to hand. And Father, we would take them and we would remember Jesus. Not just Jesus on a cross, but Jesus triumphant in glory. Father, we thank you in his precious name. Amen. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's remember the Lord together, shall we? In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's remember the Lord again, shall we? Father, again, we thank you for blood that was shed. And Father, we thank you that you have washed us and made us clean. Father, we thank you that you have clothed us in a robe. You put a ring on our fingers and shoes on our feet that tell us of our sonship, our adoption into the family of the living God. Father, we thank you for what Christ has accomplished. We thank you, O oh God, he did it, not in a simple way, but in a great, a terrible, and a powerful way. Father, we thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. The easiest thing in the world is to go through these passages and look at the stories and marvel. Great story. Great thing that Jesus did. Wow. It's amazing. But Scripture has a power. It needs to change us. And I want to make two lessons, two applications from everything we've looked at this morning. One is fairly simple, and it won't be hard to figure out. The other one is personally, for me, a difficult one. All right, number one, what is the message for us? Number two, one, come to Christ. Come by faith. Whatever your situation is, whatever problem you're facing, whether it is maybe that you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, come in faith. From the stories you've heard about the Lord Jesus, from the stories of his death and his resurrection, come in faith convinced that God can meet your need. The easiest thing in the world is to hear all this message and let it go straight on by. To be convinced of what you need to do, but not do it. And my urge, my plea with you this morning, whatever your situation is, no matter how bad it is or how not bad it is. Maybe you're in a good situation. Come 
in faith. Come convinced. Come with confession and come and worship. The second lesson is this. This is my struggle. Being Christ-like in our response to others. That verse in 2 Corinthians 3 talks about being transformed in the same image. What's that mean? That we look more like Jesus? Yes, but not look. We act. We are more like Christ. And we need to see Christ in His compassion for those people, and our response to others needs to be with greater compassion. We need to see Christ in His grace and how He dealt with those two people in grace and kindness. And how often, I'll make it personal, how often do I respond in anything but kindness and grace? So easy to just kill a flea with a sledgehammer. It's true, isn't it? Something happens and our reaction is just... It's so hard, it's so quick, it's so brutal at times. Jesus could have rebuked Jairus. He could have told the woman off about her uncleanness and how she'd acted, but he didn't. There was grace, and there was gentleness, and there was kindness. Also, there was holiness in Jesus. One of the things, someone asked me this week, what are your core values? What do you value most? And One of them is godliness. The reason why I spent so much time with Paul Washer when I was down there isn't just because he's a great preacher, which he is. It's because I spent a bit of time with him and I began to realize this is a godly guy. Unlike most men I've met in my life, this man is godliness all the way through. Jesus acted in holiness in everything he did. His holiness was so intrinsic that she was cleansed. But we're not called to just be saved and stay the way we are. We're called to be saved and to be changed. What is our response? Is it marked by godliness? Is it marked by a life of holiness? I'm challenging myself. I'm not, I'm not looking at you and the fact that I'm just looking out there. But I'm challenging myself. What is my reaction to people? And I'll tell you right now, my reaction is far too often not the right one. So I'm pointing it out to all of us. He is, we are to see him and be changed by him, which means we are to see what he does and do the same thing, react the same way, respond the same way in love. That's the last one. What did Jesus say? How will the world know that you are my disciples because of your banner out front? Well, that's one way though there's a church here. But that isn't how the, the world's supposed to know we're his disciples. Why? Because we have doctrinal integrity? That's a good one. But that's not the main one. Why? Because we have great music, or we have mediocre preaching, or we have you know, lots of people, or what? How are they going to know that we're his disciples? By the love. And Jesus showed that love in everything he did. The harsh words, as well as the kind ones, he showed love in everything he did. And I tell you something, that's what challenged me this week, working through this passage, was the way he responded to others. And we're called to be changed into his image and respond the same way. Does that make sense? All right. I'm going to pray, and then Joe's going to come and lead us a couple more songs. Would you stand? We'll pray together, and then we'll stay standing to sing. Loving Father, again, we give you thanks for the Lord Jesus.
And Father, we think about the way he responded and the way he dealt with people. And Father, we, are, we realize that we are called to be like him. And Father, to respond the way that he responded in grace and in kindness, in compassion, in gentleness. And Father, I confess my own failings in that point. Father, help all of us to stare and look long through the eyes of faith into the scriptures and to see Jesus. But not just to see him and be awed by him, but to see him and be transformed into the same image. Father, too, we think about some in this room that may not even know you personally. And the invitation, like Jairus who came to Jesus and threw himself down at Jesus' feet, like the woman who came in faith and then fell at his feet in worship, awe and trembling before him. Father, we cry out to you this morning. We plead with you, O God, that you would show them the stories of Scripture, that you would open their eyes. Father, that hearing the message of who Jesus is, that they would have faith and they would come. And Father, that they also would be changed into his likeness. Father, we plead with you again that the Spirit of God would do a work in this church, that you would, Father, awaken faith in us, that you would stir up the fire in us and blow it, and that it might be a hot fire, burning strong for you, declaring the testimony of Jesus everywhere we go, willing to open our mouths and speak of who Jesus is to us, declaring his glory in this world. Father, we cry out to you for your help. Father, we pray that you would encourage those who are hesitating about coming. Encourage them to come. Father, too, we think about those who are being baptized in a few weeks. Father, as they come and they stand before this church and all their friends and and relatives and so on, as they make a confession of faith, Father, we pray that you would strengthen them and encourage them. Father, we pray that their life would not go on unchanged, but they would come up out of that baptismal tank. And everybody will see that they are already a new creature in Christ and they would grow in their faith and they would live out that new life in Christ. I'm convinced, Lord, that Jairus' daughter got up off the bed and walked around and she was never the same. We are to be different. Father, too, I pray that you would work in this church. Father, I pray that you'd encourage our hearts. Father, give us a joy in knowing the Lord Jesus. Give us a joy in walking with him and following him. Father, we pray for a joy as we have fellowship together as those who have been set free and redeemed and reconciled. Father, we ask you for your blessing in all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.